0: Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, thank you that we have peace, mercy, freedom, love, faithfulness, steadfastness, loyalty that comes from you, even though quite different character traits come from us. We praise you for being long-suffering toward us. And you haven't been willing for us in any way, any manner, to perish. You've given us abundant grace. Help us as we worship you, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. That as we consider your word, we will be humbled, we will be sober-minded, and we will ultimately be grateful for all you've done. Minister in us and through us for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Who remembers, from 1994, the white Bronco chase in L.A.? Do you remember who was in the Bronco? Do you remember why he was on the run? You might say he was caught red-handed after nearly a year Of court proceedings, O.J. Simpson was set free, having been pronounced not guilty of the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. I can remember coming out of chapel at Bible school and hearing people sarcastically yelling, the juice is loose. One of the famed lines of the court case was Johnny Cochran saying, if it doesn't fit, You must acquit. Now that was mainly referring to the glove that the murderer would have worn in the process of the murder. Most people feel still as though justice was not served that day. Most people. Of course, uh, later, he was ordered to pay the families of the murdered victims $25 million. Thirteen years later, thirteen years later, to the day, he was sentenced for 9 to 33 years for an incident of robbery and kidnapping. Interesting, isn't it? No one was killed during that one, and there was a sentence, but 13 years earlier, not guilty. Issues of justice can be trying in our fatally flawed world, and when we see portrayals of judgment in the Bible, it can cause some people to question is God's judgment warranted? Maybe, maybe it's not so. Maybe, maybe there really isn't a reason for this kind of judgment. Maybe, maybe God's too harsh. Maybe there wasn't really the right target of his judgment. Maybe, maybe things aren't right. Is God's judgment warranted? After Habakkuk questions God's delay in judging Israel... God drops the bombshell on him that there would be judgment coming, shocking judgment, overwhelming judgment from a people called the Babylonians, also referred to as the Chaldeans. This didn't sit very well with Habakkuk. His follow-up complaint was, God, you are too holy to do that. They're worse than we are. They're much worse than we are. You couldn't possibly consider judging us with people that are more wicked than we. He proceeds to describe the vanity of the Babylonians in destroying whatever they desired. That's what he does at the end of chapter 1. Habakkuk's first complaint was of God's inaction, Habakkuk's second complaint was of God's action. At the beginning of chapter 2, Habakkuk says he'll wait. For what? God's correction regarding his complaint. He knows, he knows that his spirit about this is, is flawed. Listen, he knows he's a human. Do you know you're a human? Do you know sometimes what comes into your mind is also wrong? It's pretty good to admit it. It's pretty good to say, okay, I, I've, I've said my piece now, but I really know something is, something is off in my own mind, my own thinking. You've got to give Habakkuk credit for this. He knows that he's not right in his assessment. Look at how it begins in verse 1. I will stand my watch... In other words, I'm I'm going to go and I'm going to put myself in a position to see what's happening now and I'll set myself on the rampart. It's it's a a place to to, to watch for the enemy and, and I'll watch to see what he, God, will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. In other words, I recognize that God's response to this is not going to be favorable in the sense of agreeing with me. I'll see how he corrects me. And then God graciously answers him. You and I are so different than this. If you and I were in the place of God and Habakkuk started complaining in the first place, we probably wouldn't be very pleased. And then we tell him, okay, I'm, I'm addressing exactly what you're, you're asking me to. And, and, and when you uh, tell him what you're, how you're going to address it, then complains about that. You think... All right, pal, you don't like it when I don't act, and you don't like it when I do act. What exactly do you want? Would you like to be in my shoes? That's how we would respond, something like that. Maybe yours is a little different than mine, but we would, we would respond differently than God does. And here's how God graciously responds, beginning in verse 2. And we're going to come back to this at the end of our study of Habakkuk. So we're not going to, we're not going to dive into verses 2 through 4 as much as you want to this morning. We're going to come back and save that for the end. But God's word says this, beginning in verse 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain, clear on tables, that he may run who reads it. For the vision, that's going to be recorded on the tables, is yet for an appointed time. But at the end, it will speak and it will not lie, though it tarries, Wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. God graciously answers him and says, Write down what I'm about to tell you. Write it in a way that's clear, so people will understand it. Write it in a way that's clear, so that when they go running, because they will go running... That the message that they convey when they run with this clear message will be accurate. Then he says, what I'm telling you will in fact come to pass. What I'm telling you is the truth. You can bet your boots on it. Wait for it. It's happening. Then he says again, reiterating, trust me, the just shall live by his faith. This is God's reaction, response, his answer to Habakkuk. I would say that that is gracious, wouldn't you? And then the vision, beginning in verse six, excuse me, verse four is what we want to notice here. God gives some general reasons for his judgment in verses four and five. We'll talk about them in a moment. And then in verses six through twenty, God gives some very specific reasons for his judgment. So general and then specific. This is God's revelation. This is what God said, hey, listen, write it down. Write it so people can see it and understand it and it's clear and that the message can be clearly conveyed. It's going to come to pass, all these judgments. This is why. This is why. We're answering the question this morning, is God's judgment warranted? Most likely, for the majority of those of us that are here, we have no question about this. We don't sit back and wonder, oh, I wonder if God will err in his judgment. But you meet people day after day that do not see this this way. They do not believe that God is just. They believe that his dealings should be questioned, and they clearly openly question him. General reasons, first of all, in verses four and five. First of all, he says, "Behold the proud." So here's the first general character- characterization of the reason for the judgment. He's proud. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. In other words, the things he does, the things he thinks, they're wrong. So he's proud and he's unrighteous. Furthermore, in verse 5, he gives us some more concepts of the reason for his judgment. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine he is a proud man and he does not stay at home because he enlarges his desire as hell and he is like death and cannot be satisfied he gathers to himself all nations and he heaps up for himself all people so here's the general characterization for the reason for god's judgment pride unrighteousness drunkenness and then the, the majority of the rest of it is all about what we're going to use a big term for it. I'll give you the definition of it, okay. In implacable nature, implacable nature, implacable sim- simply means not satisfied. Not satisfied. He says it and he says it and he says it again to let them know this people that I'm judging, they are not satisfied with anything. Here's some of the ways in which they're not satisfied or, or the way he characterizes it. It says he does not stay at home. The ESV reads like this He's never at rest. He's never at rest. You know what that means? He's not satisfied. I don't have enough. I've got to go find something else. I need something more. I, I, I'm not satisfied. He then says, he enlarges his desire as hell. What does that mean? Well, let me ask you a question. Is hell satisfied? Or does it want more? It wants more people, right? It doesn't, it's not quenched because of those that are there. He enlarges his desire as hell. It's insatiable. He cannot be satisfied, it says in the middle of verse 5. He cannot be satisfied, no matter what you give him. And it, it goes to the place of being desirous of more nations and more peoples. He's not satisfied with alcohol. He's not satisfied with possessions. He's not satisfied with finance. He's not satisfied with position. He needs the people and the nations. I will go until there is no more. There'll never be an end of this kind of a spirit. So God says, the judgment's coming. Here's the reason. They're proud and unrighteous. They're drunkards. We're going to see more about that in a few minutes. And they are absolutely implacable or insatiable. They they have a desire for things and people and places that no matter what they get, it's not enough. You remember, this isn't the Babylonians. I'm just going to remind you about someone that came later. Remember Alexander the Great? The end of his life, he had conquered most of the known world, and he was he was bummed out. He was bummed out. Why? There's no other people to conquer. Really? So, like you've become like the head of the head, and that's just not enough because you just want to squash some more. That's the kind of attitude that's being spoken of here. Is God's judgment warranted? I'd say from that generalization, certainly. But then, he goes on to pronounce woe after woe after woe. Five times, five woes that give us specific reasons for God's judgment. First of all, in verses 6 through 8, he's going to pronounce woe upon them for extortion. Extortion. Well, we're extorting people, we're extorting money, we're extorting properties. Their insatiable, implacable appetite went to the point of extortion. Taking people's menial possessions and not giving them back. Look at what it says, beginning in verse 6. Will not all these take up a proverb against him, speaking about the Babylonians, and a taunting riddle against him, uh, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges. We can stop reading right there for just a moment because the rest is when it turns the tables. The idea that is being communicated here is the mistreatment of people that are in desperate straits and he's taking surety they're taking surety for the money that they're borrowing. So let's suppose you think about the Old Testament law under Moses. God said, listen, if, you borrow, if, if a poor man borrows money against you, you can take his coat as a pledge, but make sure you give it back to him by the end of the day. Well, that's not the Babylonians. They'll take your coat and they'll take your underwear. They'll take everything that you have. So you've got nothing left. They don't care. They have no scruples whatsoever. They'll extort every last penny from you. What kind of a judgment will come upon them? Well, it says in verse 6, Will not all these take a... Sorry, verse 7. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you? And you will become their booty because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. You know what God said? Someday your debt's going to be called and you know what? They'll have no pity on you either. Woe to you, extortioner. Woe to you. Is God's judgment warranted? Well, I guess that's up to you. (laughs) Your opinion is up to you whether he's, it's warranted or not really isn't up to you. A second woe pronounced for the specific sin of greed. That's very closely related, but it is another section, another woe, the sin of greed. Verse 9, Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Now this is kind of veiled, so we want to try to, try to unveil it a bit without going in, you know, getting lost in the weeds too much. Here's the big idea of this veiled statement in verses 9 and 10. The greed of the people was such that they made unjust cuts in their material. Well, what do you mean an unjust cut? It's like, all right, you go to Benny's. Benny's is a mom and pop kind of place. It's not like Lowe's or Home Depot. You go to Benny's and you, you cut a piece of lumber. Now, they don't do it this way, but let's just, just bear with me in this illustration. You cut a piece of lumber. You go up, bring up to the cash register. You say, this is five feet. It's really eight. It's five feet. So you pay five feet for five feet worth, even though you have eight. You go home, you put it in your house, good to go. As far as you're concerned, you cheated them. They were supposed to get eight feet worth. You got, they got five feet worth even though you took eight. Think about this with wood and sheetrock and paint and nails and screws and, and uh, tar paper and the ceiling tiles. You think about the lights and everything. Think about after doing this with item after item, giving them 70 cents on the dollar, how much have you cheated them? Well, that's interesting. What God says is your own soul, you're sinning against your own soul. God says that the materials themselves will cry out against you. Your lumber will say, hey, do you remember? You only paid for five feet worth when you got ten. Your light bulb will say, hey, you know you only paid 75 cents when it was really dollar twenty-five? Your, your floor towels will say, hey, I know you said you only bought 70 square feet, but you really bought 100. You're sinning against your own soul, and God says, woe unto you. Your own soul and the material and everything you've done, it will cry out against you. Now, God, in the Mosaic Law, had condemned the manipulation of scales. He said, listen, if you're going to go and buy some wheat from someone, make sure you give them the right amount of money for the amount of wheat you buy. Don't don't bring a faulty scale and don't charge them more for what you're selling them than what they're actually getting. Give a fair product. Greed, greed does all kinds of things. We see it every day. You see it all over the place. You see it us Bothers me. You see it when a hurricane hits New Orleans and the place is wrecked. Just wrecked. And people go in, and they're stealing stuff out of the stores. Yeah, bad bad news. But the, the gas companies, eight dollars a gallon. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You don't have enough billions yet. You have to extort it from people that have just lost everything. Are you serious? Greed. So I ask you again. Is God's judgment warranted? He follows it up with a third woe, this time for bloodshed in verses 12 through 14. Bloodshed. Listen to what he says. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that peoples, that the peoples labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Listen to what he's saying. There are people that are coming in, and they're trying to take what they can get, and they're willing to kill people for it. They go into places that are not theirs, and they steal, and they they go into places, and they kill people so they can have what is not theirs, They'll do whatever is necessary to make their kingdom prominent. You know what God says here? It will not endure. The Lord didn't give you this desire in your heart to to go in and steal things that are not yours and, and kill people so you can have great lands. Guess what? You know what you're doing? You are laboring to put stuff in a fire. Well, what does a fire do? It consumes it. Guess what you need to do? Put more in, and guess what will happen? It'll be consumed, so you put more in. Guess what will happen? It'll be consumed. It will not endure. But God's kingdom is so different than that. These people, they're going in, and they're killing people to to have a a prominent and an enduring kingdom, and God says, it's not going to happen, but I want to tell you about a kingdom that will endure. I want to tell you about that one. It'll fill the earth. It will endure. We're going to come back to this concept. But I have to mention it now because it would be inappropriate not to mention it now. This kingdom will also be established by bloodshed. But it's not through the bloodshed of many, and it's not through the bloodshed of others. This kingdom spoken of here is through the bloodshed of one, and it's of God himself, his own beloved son. That is how the kingdom is established. It is established by bloodshed, but it's the bloodshed of his own son. Listen, they are ravenous, and they don't care who gets in their way, and they'll get what they want. And God says, it's not going to amount to anything. I'll tell you what I'll do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill me, my own son. I'm going to kill my son. There'll be bloodshed. One person's bloodshed, the one for the many. And it will establish a kingdom that will never, under any circumstances, will not be defeated. It will endure forever. Listen, God is telling us why he's judging them. He's giving us reasons. What are they so far? Well, first of all, they extorted people. And they're greedy to the point of taking every last penny from someone. And they don't care what gets in their way. If something has to die, if someone has to die, it will die. Fine, I'll take it because I want it. Bloodshed is is God's judgment warranted. There's a fourth woe pronounced. It's upon drunkenness and violence. We see it in verses 15 through 17. God's word says, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk. That you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink, drink, and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory, for the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood, and the violence of the land and the city, and all who dwell in it. Listen to what he's saying. He's basically saying this. You, you'll use any means to get what you want, even making people drunk so you can get have your way with them. Have your way with them. Can you get the feel of what's being said here? People use alcohol to get an advantage over others. It happens every day. It happens in bars and nightclubs every day. For real. Like it's for real. Every day. So God says, go get drunk, Babylonians. And you know what? They don't obey much fact they're very rebellious but they obeyed this one they obeyed God on the very last night of the Babylonian dynasty the people gathered together and had a drunken party using the vessels of the temple and something weird happened of course something weird happened you're you're tanked you're you're in the gutter. You've you've consumed so much alcohol that you are you're absolutely looney tune. A hand appeared out of nowhere and it wrote something on the wall. And this is what it said. And this is the writing that was inscribed. "Mene, mene, Tycho, and uh, parson." This is the interpretation of the matter. "Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end." In other words, Listen. Listen. How he said, "God has numbered the days, and this is it." Tickle, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, which is the singular of parson, or the plural of parson. I don't remember now. I haven't. I haven't studied the uh, the ten, the uh, the number of this for a little while. But it's it's either the the singular of parson or it's the plural of parson. I don't remember. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So during this drunken party that the P- Babylonians were having, and they're, they're celebrating the gods of the, the Babylonians with the articles that belonged in God's temple back in Jerusalem, This hand comes and it writes on the wall and says, hey, listen, I know the number of the days of your kingdom and this is the end of it right now. So here they are, drunk in this party, and the Medes and the Persians come rushing in and that was the end of the Babylonian dynasty. Uh, They obeyed this one. Get drunk. Oh, yes, we'll we'll do that one. That's a good one. I like that one. I like that command, so I'll obey it. And God brings this to pass. Now listen carefully as we just try to make a small application before we move on. The Bible speaks harshly, harshly against drunkenness because of its devastating effects. I would say, friends, listen carefully, please. I would say that anything that leads up to drunkenness can't really be that profitable. What do you think? What do you think? You might say, maybe you, maybe not. Maybe this is the theoretical you, or maybe this is actually you. It takes the edge off. Ponder that for just a second. If that's your thinking, I would say that what you're doing is you're substituting the fruit of the spirit for the fruit of the vine. Which of those two things you think is going to work out better? Hmm? I wonder. God condemns drunkenness, that's clear. Some other elements of the discussion on drinking wine and alcohol may be up for discussion, possibly debate, for some. But what I'll tell you is this if you need some kind of alcohol to make you feel joy or peace or love, you be looking in the wrong place. You will never get it there. It won't come. And I might just add that might be idolatry. Just saying. Just saying. Just think it through. You've got to make a decision for yourself. You will stand accountable for, before the Lord about these issues between you and him. All right. The people of Babylon are being judged. It's very obvious. Can we, not, can we can't see it any other way, right? There's judgment coming. And the question we're asking is God's judgment warranted. Well, first of all, they're extortioners and they're greedy and they shed innocent blood or blood, bloodshed. And then they're... Drinking to drunkenness and utilizing that to violently deal with people. Not good. There's a fifth woe, a fifth area that God condemns about their activities specifically, and that is idolatry. Look, beginning in verse 18. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, Awake! To silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent. Before him, people are seeking pleasure in every nook and cranny. They seek it in people, places, and things, vacations, and drinks, and food, and clothing, and vehicles. You can list on and on. They're looking for pleasure. They're looking for satisfaction in all kinds of places. Whenever, listen carefully, whenever you seek to gain satisfaction from something more than the one who designed you, you're seeking for satisfaction from something more than seeking for satisfaction from the one who designed you you have indeed become involved in a form of idolatry none of these items will give you what you need you can't say speak arise do for me they will not speak they will not arise and they will not do for you they are just tangible finite even If they're living, let's suppose it's a person. While they're alive, you can't say it's dead and it can't speak. Well, yes, they might be alive and they might be able to speak, but they can't give you life. Yeah, And they will come to an end. Many have experienced someone that they worshipped as a a being and they died and that was the end. And so they spend the rest of their lives just mourning the loss of this person they loved so much. Now, I I don't criticize a person who mourns the loss of someone they love but be careful that your love for someone does not become all-encompassing and, in fact, idolatrous. A while back, I was texting back and forth with a friend of mine who was and is going through some of the most difficult circumstances in life. He was having a particularly difficult day, and I tried to offer him (laughs) comfort through his darkness. And our conversation ended. It was a Saturday night. The next morning, he returned a text that said, thanks for talking, joy comes in the morning. So this was really encouraging. And then he, he texted me the video of a song entitled, Clear the Stage. The words are, they're really cutting. They're, they're very purposeful, they're very specific. I want to share one of the sections of the song with you. Anything I put before my God is an idol. Anything I want with all my heart is an idol. Anything I cannot stop thinking about is an idol. Anything I give all my love to is an idol. Listen, these idols don't give life. God is life. God is alive. And God gives life. This is what Habakkuk hears at the end. But the Lord is in his holy temple. He's alive. He's real. He's tangible. And he's not simply finite. He is infinite. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Um, Stop your complaining. Stop your complaining. Is God's judgment warranted? God paints a picture of bringing about justice not only in Judah in chapter 1, but also against the Babylonians. He paints a picture for the reason for this judgment, such categories as pride and discontentment, drunkenness, violence, and idolatry. I want to take a a step back from this text because I think we see what's being said here. And I think it's time to, to drive the point home. The reality is, friends, these very character traits we can find in our own lives And they put us in a position that warrants judgment. Let's take a look at a couple of passages of Scripture, please. Don't fade out. Don't tune out. Don't move on to the next thing. We're in the Scriptures. We're worshiping God. Let us continue to worship Him in the Word. In Romans chapter 3, please. We read this as our responsive reading earlier. And it's really the, the culmination... Of the first three chapters of the book of Romans. He's been building, 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 building. And then he brings home the whopper. The closing statement of the section. Beginning in verse 9 of Romans chapter 3. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. I'm just going to do a little application here. Are we better than the Babylonians? And I'm going to say not at all. All, not a shred better oh but I wouldn't I wouldn't kill someone have you ever you've been frustrated with someone have you ever been angry with someone Jesus said hey you've heard it said don't kill someone I, if, if you are angry you killed them in your heart are you better than the Babylonians I don't extort people mm. listen Just know if you're guilty of one element of the law, you're guilty of the entire thing. You and I are no better than the Babylonians. Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have Fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, listen, and all the world may become guilty before God. You know what that says? I warrant God's judgment. You warrant God's judgment. Look further, please, at the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Lest we fool ourselves into thinking that the most judgeable kind of sin is the sexual sin or the killing kind of sin or the extorting kind of sin or the drinking kind of sin or the snorting kind of sin. Lest we fool ourselves into thinking that it's only the despicable things that we would never involve ourselves in that warrant judgment, let us hear the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, I want to tell you a little bit about me. Beginning in verse 3, he gives them this purpose statement, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have, what does it say? No confidence in the flesh. Who is this? Your neighbor, unsaved people, right? Because we know how to do stuff now. We've, We've become really, really, really special Christians. We've learned for however many years. We're very spiritual, and now we know how to do the things that God asks us to do. He says, we have no confidence in the flesh. He includes himself, he includes the church of Philippi, and he includes the church of Warwick. This is about us. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Listen, concerning the righteousness which is found in the law. What? Blameless. If you want to compare resumes, I've, I've really got a better one than you do. And I don't, I don't have confidence in the flesh. Listen to what he says. But what things were gained to me these spiritual things listed, my lineage, my heritage, the sect of the Pharisees that I was a part of, the, the zeal that I had against persecuting the church, the righteousness that I had in keeping the law according to our commandments, not really God's, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. He says, I don't have a righteousness to offer. My righteousness is dung. I need his. I need his. It's spiritual dung. It's really cleaned up dung. It's like spiffed up, shined up dung, but it's dung. Listen, look yourself in the mirror. And say, everything you've got to offer is useless. That's the bottom line. What is of value is what he gives. So here we are, we're thinking, all right. I'm just as guilty as the Babylonians. What I offer is useless. Well, let's let's, let's dial it up a notch, shall we? Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2 just for a moment. Ephesians 2 beginning in verse 1. The others, you know, he he just said we. Not only are we just like the Babylonians, and not only are all of our offerings of goodness are dung; they're worthless. He just told us we're dead. You know what, friend? A dead person can't do anything. It can't attain merit with God. It can't. It can't come to the point where God says, "Oh, dead corpse." Thank you for all of these things that you've done for me. You're dead! But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Who will show it? He will show forth the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it even is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Listen, out of all our sinfulness... In all of our brokenness, God redeems a people. God does this. Am I worthy of God's judgment? Yes! I warrant God's judgment to the nth degree, to, to the max, for eternity. This is what I deserve. And God says, ah, I will make you alive. I will place you in Christ. I will give you Christ's righteousness. It'll be yours eternally. So I will demonstrate my goodness and my riches of my grace forever and ever and ever. Amen. And this is what Habakkuk was telling us. Just a little glimpse right in the middle of Habakkuk chapter 2 when he said this. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Listen, rather than bloodshed of many to take the land from its possessors, God's kingdom is established through the bloodshed of his own son. Through this bloodshed, the bloodshed of Christ, an eternal kingdom, resurrection, and enduring a glorious, a peaceful kingdom will reside on the earth. And how does it come about? Through the bloodshed of one. If you can picture in your mind's eye what the Bible describes in detail, the Son of God, naked, broken bloody, rejected hanging on a cross saying it is finished you know what it cost to make this kingdom come about and it's through that same price that makes the kingdom come about that he took upon himself the judgment that should have been mine and the judgment that should have been yours it is God's Judgment warranted yes and yes and yes again. And the reality is God judged his son in my place. So I will never stand in condemnation. And my righteousness will not be weighed. It's all about his righteousness. It's done. It's done. Do you believe this? You look at Habakkuk chapter 2. And he he tells Habakkuk, listen, just calm down. Here's, Here's what you need to hear. Here's the reality. The Babylonians are coming. They'll be judged as well. They're proud. They're unrighteous. The justified shall live believing me. The justified shall live by faith. What a God... It gives us confidence, even in these tricky areas. You look at things that happen in the world, and people want to say, "Oh, how could a loving God allow blank? You know what, friend? Why does he stop so much of the evil that's around us every day? How come we're still alive? How come someone hasn't raped and pillaged us? Why aren't all of our possessions gone? Why do we still have freedom today? to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why do we still have cars to drive and houses to live in? Why? The the question is because God restrains a certain amount of evil. And we want to question when he doesn't hold it back. The reality is God has a right to judge. And thankfully, we know him as the one who judged Christ in our place so that we'll never face judgment. Now, maybe you don't know this. Maybe you don't. Have that understanding of God and Jesus, that your sins have been dealt with eternally. Well, I can tell you this. If you want to know more about this, before you leave today, when we sing our last song and everyone's milling about, talking, or leaving, come to the front. Come to the front. We'll show you from the scriptures how you can have confidence that your sin is forgiven, that the judgment that Jesus took has been applied to you, that you might have life eternally. Let's pray together. Father, you're good... Help us to continue to sing of your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen.